Market Call. Dan Nathan back at headquarters. I'm in my basement. Hope everybody's well. A little afternoon baseball at Shea for those that are still watching, all nine of you. But I digress. Today's Market Call brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Today, we're going to have an Apple trade, and we're going to do something called With Sound from the great OK Computer. So we're going to integrate some properties here, Dan Nathan. Yeah, you know, by the way, Guy, I, I know that you are a huge fan of Radiohead and their 1997 al album, OK Computer. So we're not going to be playing. We don't have the rights to play that on our fine program, but we do have a podcast from the Risk Reversal Media family called OK. It's OKAY Computer. It's all things tech. It drops every Wednesday morning in your favorite podcast store. Yesterday, um, I had a great conversation with Dan Niles of Satori Fund Guy. You've known Dan Niles for a while. He's been on CNBC for years. He was he was an epic, epic analyst, okay, sell-side analyst during the dot-com heyday, and he's become uh, a terrific, terrific uh, tech investor. So we had a great conversation. We'll run some clip of that, just to be clear, Guy. Um, and uh, I know that you got Radiohead ready to go here, don't you? I love, I have all their, I probably have like 13 Radiohead songs yeah. on my 845 Spotify playlist. Because, you know, they were really sort of the soundtrack of, of my early working years. So yeah, back in the what, what would what would a commute be without great Radiohead? I'm just I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. Let, let's do this thing here, man, because it's interesting. You know, guy, we talk a lot about just kind of sentiment shifts in the market. And, and some folks who don't stare at a fact set machine like you and I do almost uh, all day, every day, you know, while the, while the market's open. You know, sometimes that stuff maybe kind of goes over your head a little bit. I don't mean like it's highbrow or this and that or whatever, but unless you're kind of doing this sort of like every day, you know, uh, work that we're doing and watching just how sector rotations happen and how investors seem to go from one thing to the next, whether it be a narrative or something like that, or maybe it's a geography or whatever, those things are really important to us. And we think they're a, a bit nuanced, but sometimes they are a great indication about how markets might be at inflection points. Is that fair? You know what I mean? And I think you and I spent a lot of time in July talking about all the excitement in the lead up to Q2 earnings about AI. And we were talking about all different other sorts of companies, not just software companies or semiconductor companies who are actually speaking to productivity gains with AI. And we just thought it was a bit of a frenzy, right? And when we got to the Q2 earnings, um, you know, the companies were not able to demonstrate a lot of tech companies that this was going to be a very near term sort other than, let's say, an NVIDIA that's seeing great demand for their chips that this was going to be um, a huge driver of their earnings. So I'm just curious, Guy, when you see the S&P acting the way it is right now, the NASDAQ is down a bit more, maybe a little more than 5% from its recent highs. Do you think we've reached a bit of an inflection point? Because one of the biggest drivers in the spring for the gains when the S&P popped above 4,200 and got to what, above 4,600 or something, really was the enthusiasm in technology primarily around AI and what it would mean for, you know, just earnings and sales going forward. For Look, it certainly feels that way. And if we could sort of lengthen this chart out just a little bit to sort of incorporate what was that prior all-time high a couple years ago, that fall, I guess, or the, I guess December yep. of 21 or so, you'll see. I mean, we had a great move off the bottom from last October, lower left, upper right, without question. Quite frankly, the pullback we've seen is not unlike pullbacks we've seen since that point. I think it happens to be a little bit different this time. I think it's noteworthy 
that although, you know, we had this run, we didn't really approach those prior all-time highs. I think that's interesting. I think we both think that prior sort of intermediate high in August of last year, that 43 and a quarter, 43.50 level is a natural resting point for us at least to go down to this first time down. That makes sense. But to answer your question specifically, you know, I think some of the other factors that are happening that we've been harping on for a while that have not had an impact on the market are starting to have an impact on the market. By the way, not least of which, I think the bond market and yields in this country, which continue to ratchet up, not only this country, obviously, but other countries as well. So that coupled with, I think, China, I think, obviously, there was a lot of excitement in earnings. Earnings were fine, but not nearly as robust as I think to sort of um, justify the valuations and the levels that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and I posed this question to Dan Niles um, yesterday, and you kind of can get his answer. But the question was in like 2021, when the Fed essentially said they're going to be raising interest rates coming off of zero interest rate bound, they're going to be taking liquidity out of the markets, they were going to be, you know, kind of curtailing their quantitative easing, you know, what got hit? hardest the first it was high valuation tech it was SPACs it was unprofitable companies it was crypto it was anything that felt really crazy speculative meme stocks that sort of thing you know and it's interesting guys because here we are right now and we're getting more comfortable with the notion that you know if we look at that CME Fed funds tracker we're at five and a half percent on the upper bound here um, you know rates are going to stay high higher for longer. I mean, that seems like the narrative that a lot of folks seem very comfortable with, yet they also seem very comfortable that the economy is not going to take a hit off it. That goes to that no landing scenario. And I think you and I would both agree that something's got to give here a little bit because if in 2021, the knee-jerk reaction was to sell high valuation when interest rates were going to come off the zero interest rate bound. Now here we are, okay, with 5.5% in the Fed funds, four and a quarter in the 10 year. And I just don't see how the most highly valued stocks that might be seeing and Apple is one of them. Okay. At 30 times or whatever has just downgraded their guidance for two consecutive quarters for revenues in a row. I just don't know how these valuations make sense. And you may say, we're just kind of continue to kind of like scream at, at this kind of scenario that doesn't make sense to us, but sooner or later, I think you would agree. And especially if we pull up this NASDAQ 100, I mean, the Chickens have to come home to roost, don't they? I think so. Valuations do matter at a certain point. I understand, you know, people's want to be bullish. I get it. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, again, that lag period, which I thought we would, by the way, I thought we'd feel a lot of this pain months ago. So I was wrong. But doesn't mean the lag does not exist and we're not going to be in the midst of it at some point. And I've said this for a while. Unfortunately, I think we're going to find ourselves in the midst of that while inflation starts to reaccelerate and you're seeing it around the edges. I mean, just look at the last PPI number. So that's going to be problematic. And again, in an environment where, you know, everything is predicated on credit and the reliance on credit and being able to finance things almost by definition, you have to assume that the hikes that we've seen over this period of time are going to have some impact, not only on the market, but the economy as well. And I, and again, I think we're starting to see it. We have a question sort of around that, from Griffin Keenan, who's here every day. And this is actually a great question. Could you guys talk about the LQD and whether it has whether it is as important as the HYG or should it be interpreted differently? So as I as I like to say, I can speak intelligently about some things, but you know, the the components and how the HYG and LQD trade is probably not one of them. I'll say this though. 
the LQD is far more reliant upon or predicated upon interest rate moves. And if we can put up an LQD chart quickly over the last, I don't know, couple of years, you'll notice that we made a low back in October of about 98 and a half or so. That's when 10-year rates were sort of at their zenith. As rates came off, the LQD went up. And now, obviously, as rates are going back higher, the LQD is coming uh, back down to earth. I think it's interesting that we're actually lower here than we were in the throes of, obviously, COVID. HYG, um, on the flip side of the coin, does not trade nearly as robustly as the LQD. I don't think it's nearly as sort of predicated on yields, but we're in this pennant formation that we've been trying for a while. And you look at this, and we were asked the question last week, how does this resolve itself? I think it's pretty obvious, my answer, but for the new people here, I'll say, I think it resolves itself to the downside. And I think we're probably going to test levels that we last saw in COVID because I do think there's a credit event coming. So although both are important, the one that I sort of look at more closely, Griffin, is the HYG, Dan. Yeah, you know, guy, and I want to bring it back. I, I think that's a great point. So when you're thinking about the HY yield, uh, HYG, that's high yield credit, and then this was kind of more liquid um, credit, the L LQD. And, and, and so when you think about this, okay, and so you think about what could be some of the headwinds to U.S. equities, okay, um, you know, like credit deterioration would be one of them, right? And this is something that we've been talking about. And we're seeing it in some areas in commercial real estate and in some other areas we're seeing on the consumer front, we're seeing um, credit card delinquencies. I think Axios had a, a report out yesterday. They're back at pre-pandemic highs, okay? So again, we're seeing a lot of this liquidity, you know, come out of the economy here. And we know that there's, you know, tens of millions of Americans who are about ready to, to actually have to start to prepare to pay back student loans. They're the there's been a moratorium, you know, for, for over a couple of years now. And so at some point, if we start to see credit deteriorate, you're going to see it across the consumer, across the enterprise, you know, across the spectrum here. So I, I also want to go to a comment from David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research uh, guy this morning. I thought this was really interesting. And this kind of speaks to valuation. It also speaks to where rates were um, a year ago. So David said the S&P 500 is exactly where it was in the second quarter of 2022. That was also, uh, you know, they started raising interest rates in March of 2022, right? They started with a 25 basis point hike at the time. Yet forward EPS forecasts for 2023 are down 11% and 9% for 2024. So think about what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about the pre uh, the, the potential for credit deterioration. We're talking, um, you know, why? Well, rates have gone up fast as they've ever gone from zero, you know, to 5%, 5.5%, uh, 5 .5%, something like that. And think about where estimates are for the S&P 500 and think about where the index is actually is, you know, basically more than a year. Uh, you know, to me, this doesn't make any sense, guy. Like, like so to me, like, mm -hmm. like there needs to be a, a bit more fear put back in the market. The complacency that the Fed is, and we're going to have the Fed minutes out in, in that last mm -hmm. um, meeting, you know, that's coming out, I think, at the top of the hour or so. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. But I, I think you and I both agree, no matter how bullish you are, you know, a VIX above 20, an S&P back towards 4,200 or something, like might be the best scenario for the year-end S&P price target, in my I opinion. I agree with that. I mean, yeah, and it's something we've been saying for a while. I 100% agree with that. And that last bullet point of the four, Chinese stocks are faltering. Yeah, in a word, yes. And it's not just their stocks. I mean, there are huge concerns there. I mean, we've been talking about this for quite some time. And again, there's this belief that somehow when China's doing well, that's going to be the growth engine for the world. And this is going to be great for our stock market. 
Conversely, when China seems to be going the other way, people sort of discount it and say it's not as big a deal. I will tell you, it's a huge deal. And again, as their currency devalues or weakens, I think it's going to have ramifications here. We got a question, and this is interesting. I mean, it sort of falls into what we've been talking about from Stephen. Does XLU make sense here? It's the bottom of a long-term channel. I haven't looked at it, but I would guess that XLU is probably trading down the levels we last saw in October of last year. And there you go. I'm actually pretty close. And why is that? Because obviously as yields go higher, there are alternatives for utilities. As yields go lower, utilities are more attractive. So I guess, Stephen, the answer to your question is, if you think yields are going to continue to go higher, then you stay away from utilities. If you think this is a top in yields, in other words, four and a quarter in the 10 year is a top and we're going to start to go back down. I think this is a pretty good entry point. Now, to answer the question by saying, I think yields will still go higher here, Dan. Yeah, it was interesting. Carter spent some time, Guy, on, on the 10-year, and, and he said that, you know, we might get above that prior high, but he doesn't think it's going to be something um, from a technical standpoint, okay? Like, he didn't think it's going to be something that is going to be like a four and a quarter straight to 5% or something like that. I mean, something something nuts would have to happen guy if you think about that like for that move this has been a very long base and i know your um your old friend you uh louise louise yamada love her what, mount so everest the, longer the base the rushmore the, the higher in space um you know and this has been a like a nice slow grind here i think it's interesting that that 200 day moving average is kind of flatlined here too so again, you know, uh, maybe that's the case. If, if yields were, if the ten year were to break out here, guy, and go straight to four and a half, the S and P five hundred is at forty one hundred. I'm, I'm just telling you flat out because it's just not going to be something that's going to be supportive um, of equity valuations. All right, here's one from a valuation standpoint. I think this is really interesting. Okay, we've spent a lot of time focused on Nvidia, which is a trillion dollar market cap. Um, it is a semiconductor company. It is probably the easiest pure play if you believe in the secular shift in uh, AI, the demand for these high-end graphic chips that are training these large language models and these generative AI models, they're the only ones pretty much who got them, okay? We get it. They report next Wednesday. We're gonna we're gonna keep talking about people because to me, I think the fate guy of the stock market rests in the hands of the guidance of this company. But we'll do a deeper dive later in the week or next week on this, okay? I think it's interesting. Here's Carl Quintanilla on the Twitter. Twitter, um, and I no longer get the Twitter, but our crack team guy, they're just kind of throwing the tweets in our chat here. So I see this here. This is Barclays. And we've had, what is this, the fourth broker, uh, the fourth analyst in, in, a, in a few days who are basically saying very similar things. We were surprised that NVIDIA stock has not moved much over the last month. There is clearly some hesitation to buy the name up 200% this year, but we believe the stock will look cheap exiting earnings as the street moves to our $15 plus EPS estimate for next year. So I want you to speak to this a little bit because this is what, as the stock sold off more than, I don't know, 10, 12% from its recent highs, okay, a lot of brokers, a lot of analysts have come out defending the stock into earnings next week. And I got to tell you, you know, they better put up a massive beat and raise because it's if not, it's lights out. I agree with that. Doug Cass has been putting some work out on Twitter, and he's been texting us during this about NVIDIA as well. And I agree with the whole lights out scenario. And just so we understand, $15 uh, for their estimates, I think street consensus for next year is about 12 bucks. just for perspective here. And, you know, again, if they get into 15 it would still be an expensive stock, but you can make the argument that they're growing into their valuation and it's interesting, I think another analyst, I think it was Rosenblatt Securities or somebody like that, 
put an $800 price target on this stock, I think up from $600 or so. So it's clear that people are getting themselves all lathered up. And listen, five years from now, we might be talking about exactly that. The question is the here and now, and given the run we have, and given the gap in the chart, and given the expectations, and given interest rates, and all the things we're talking about, and the things that you talk about as well, the double ordering that's probably been taking place vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese, what does that mean for this quarter? So Again, if you don't see a commensurate guide like you saw last quarter where the stock was just off to the races, I think it's reasonable to suggest we're going to fill in that gap if you go back to May. And the gap's probably somewhere between 325 and 340, Dan. Yeah, and I guess I wonder, Guy, even if they were to guide, you know, that, that gives confidence that there's going to be like 13 or $14. Like, who hasn't bought the stock already? You know what I mean? Like, anticipating a beat. Like, that's the thing. So I don't know who the incremental buyer is. Maybe it's a short. But at that point, you're probably going to wait it out a little bit and see how longs react to that. So, you know, to me, any hiccups um, in this one and the stock's down 50 to 100 bucks. It just telling you, and I'm not telling you like to go out and short the stock. It seems uh, a bit dangerous here, um, also because if they were to guide up again, um, you know, maybe there's another fifty to hundred dollar move to the upside. Um, really quickly, I want to look at the SMH ETF that tracks the semiconductor index. Obviously, Nvidia is twenty percent or so of that. Taiwan Semi is the second biggest one here, guy. You look at this uptrend that's been in place. It's sitting right on it. It's holding on for dear life. I've detailed a trade idea a couple of weeks ago in the SMH using um, put defining my risk and that thing is working out pretty nicely i think it was very near 159 when i started buying puts in september i've been rolling them a little bit and playing this one lower i do think that we're going to have a break of this uptrend and i think we're going to probably see the stock or the etf converge with that rising 200 day moving average below that uptrend and guy just real quickly before your comment you're the one who's highlighted this look at that multi-year chart that that epic and I know we had a question about this yesterday. Uh, you know, is it actually a double top until it's confirmed at you know lower levels here? But to me, it would take a huge beat and raise from NVIDIA to get this thing to break out to new highs, guy. I agree with that. And listen, we've heard some commentary out of some of the other larger components of this ETF that has not been particularly um, robust in a word. And again, in retrospect, if this were trading 110 in a month from now, everybody will say, well, it's obvious that there was this double top. We don't have that luxury. We're trying to do it in real time. And in real time, I will say this. The way to trade this is to be shorted here. Look for that move to the moving average of 110, which I don't think is unreasonable, especially if we get the move that I think we might get in NVIDIA. And on the upside, you're wrong if it closes above those prior double tops. I mean, it's as simple as it gets in terms of a trade. And in terms of risk reward, I think that's an extraordinarily strong risk reward. Again, it doesn't suggest we're going to be right, but you also have to know, I think, what you're looking for on the downside if you're wrong and obviously on the upside if you're right. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, so we'll we'll check back in on that one. The technicals seem like it's um, a good setup to play for downside there because a lot of great things have to happen in one company dragging up an entire sector. Again, that would be quarter over quarter, which I'm just not so sure that's going to happen again. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Apple here because, again, this is the largest market cap company um, in the world. Um, we know that the stock is down more than 10%. I think the disappointing quarter was one of the reasons um, that dragged it lower. I think the break, the technical break, which 
we've spent some time, Guy. It's been a near perfect 45 degree angle, bottom left from January of this year to just the recent highs. And that break is, I think, considerable. Carter's talked about it. You've talked about it. You thought we would see this sort of move lower. Here we are. We're sitting right on that breakout level from a few months ago, which, you know, and, and it seems fairly significant. I want to get your take on what Dan Niles said to me yesterday on OK Computer. And just so you people know, before we run this quick clip here, go to the podcast store, follow it at OK Computer um, in the podcast store. So you're going to get that every Wednesday morning um, in your phone or however you listen to podcasts here. We also have it on YouTube here. So here's the clip, Guy, and I want to get your take on the way out of it. Right now, you should own Apple, and we actually have it long in our fund for no other reason than I'm using it as a long against the shorts. You go back over 20 years and you look at the, the company a month before they launch a new product, which in this case will be coming up early September. The stock goes up about 67% of the time with an average gain of over 3% just that one month. For right now, we're renting it, but my plan is to be massively short this name on the other side of that product launch. It's interesting. I mean, I hear what he's saying. And listen, he is one of the foremost people in terms of obviously understanding the company and understanding how to trade the company almost as importantly. Personally, I think, you know, he might be being a little bit cute here in terms of the rent then look obviously to get massively short the stock. But I get it. I mean, here's a level that it should stop at. If you're looking for a bounce, it makes sense to sort of trade it from the long side here. But this is what I'll say, and this is what I've been saying for a while. I thought it was logical that we get back to the prior all-time high. We did. That's that green horizontal line. And if you go back to last fall, that's where we topped out at. So it makes sense that we're stopping here. The fact that we're not bouncing from here is problematic, but not overly concerning yet. Ideally, I think you want to see it get back down to that 161 level, which coincides with the moving average and also a 50% retracement, obviously, of those lows that we saw and that recent all-time high. So that's how I'd be trading it. I mean, Dan Niles is absolutely the man. Um, but you got to be, you know, if you get a little too cute here, it could actually come back to bite you in the rear end. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, Guy. I think Dan also said in our conversation, he's a long, short hedge fund manager. He is long this, and he's short a bunch of other stuff that he thinks is high, higher valuation and greater risk to the downside. So for him, it's a net exposure sort of game. And I think if he's looking at that data over the last whatever amount of years that we usually have a run into the event, then that's fine. That might give him the opportunity to get out of the long and maybe put a short on the way I'm trading this is a little differently here. And I want to use options. I want to define my risk guy. And I don't really have to worry about a 3% rally into this event. I just kind of want to put a trade on that set it and forget it. And I'm targeting a breakdown of this current level and getting back to that support level that you identified here. So today when the stock was trading about 177 and a half, you could buy the October expiration 175 155 put spread, paying about $3.50 for that, buying one of the October 175 puts for about $4.50, selling one of the way downside October 155 puts at a dollar. Your max premium at risk is that $3.50. You have profits up to $16.50 between $171.5 and $155. That's that short way downside put strike. And you have losses up to $350 between $171.5 and $175 with a max loss of $350 above $175. Okay, so here's the rationale for this trade idea. I'm risking about 2% of the stock price. I have a 
break even about down about three and a half percent. And I have a max gain of nearly 10% of the stock price um, if it's down at 155 or about three, you know, nearly four, four, uh, five times the premium at risk here. So I like the risk reward guy playing for a 13% downside move between now and October expiration, which is about two months. And a lot could happen between now and then. And again, you know, in my conversation with Dan, we talk a lot about the issues potentially with China, with, uh, you know, the whole host of things, okay, as it relates to Apple. So curious what you think about the range here that I'm targeting and, and the technical levels and the reasons for it. I think the range is right. I would have looked at the 160 puts. I'm not, I don't know what you would have gotten paid for those, but if it was significantly more, that would make sense just given the levels. But that trade, listen, you're risking three and a half dollars. And if you nail this thing correctly, you might actually be able to get long the stock at levels that you exactly want to be long at if, in fact, you put the stock and you hedge the puts that you bought on the way down. So I think the trade makes a lot of sense. It sort of plays in the levels we talked about. As I said, you know, maybe a tweak in terms of the put sale, in terms of the strike. But if you're not getting paid enough, the 155s make a lot of sense. Yes. For some of you very sophisticated folks, when Guy talks about being put at that lower strike, if you were inclined to do a one by two put spread, right, and and really take in more premium, if, if really you would be a buyer at the 160 or the 155 level, that is also um, one way to do it. But it does take a lot of margin to do that in most people's accounts. Again, one of the reasons why I was looking at the 155 strike is that just like the stock overshot to the the upside, you know, last month, it has the potential to do so to the downside. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to give myself a little room there. Um, so I appreciate your outlook um, on that. And real quick, one yeah. of the comments is you're going to update us when you take the trade off or doing and the, and the answer is absolutely yes. We, we, we try to make do up trade updates as often as we possibly can. So whether it's a winner or a loser, this trade will be updated. Yeah, and we've been doing that. That's one of the reasons why we just brought up that SMH trade idea um, from a few weeks ago. And I think I, um, a, a week and a half ago or so, indicated that I rolled the puts down to a different strike. And so um, we're going to be, uh, you know, we will always be transparent on those sorts of trade ideas. Um, Guy, I also wanted to kind of run a clip from Dan Niles yesterday, um, what he had to say about Tesla, because this one, it feels like the fever has broken a little bit here. And I got to tell you, I got run over okay i had a great trade on into okay their q1 report at the end of april and the guidance was bad and the stock traded 155 and then it went from 155 you saw it straight to 300 dollars with all the ai stuff i don't even know what the hell happened but then you know the day before earnings for their q2 earnings stock almost kissed 300 bucks Gap down 10% ish the next day, and it hasn't really seen too many upticks um, since then. Here's what Dan had to say about Tesla. And we had a very long conversation, but this is one clip of it, and you guys should go listen to the whole thing. I'm short the stock. Um, we added to it a little bit recently, but you know, I'm very well aware this is a cult stock to some degree. But you know, I would say for good reason, because I'm a huge Elon Musk fan. But you can be a fan of the person, you can be a fan of the products and not be a fan of the company itself because of high valuations, declining margins, increasing financing costs for their cars, and the geopolitical risk. When China's struggling with their own growth, you know, I would think they would want to favor their own car companies against Tesla. It's fascinating. You know, people look at Tesla and say, look at the move we've seen 
from 101, I guess it was in the fall or maybe January, yeah. all the way up to 295, 300, you know, seemingly just a few weeks or so ago. I mean, that's a heroic move. But then you look at it a little longer term. I mean, this is a stock that's effectively gone from $407 at its high-ish, might have been higher than that. You know, we're down about 45% or so, despite the fact that we've rallied from 100 to 300. So just something to keep in mind. And again, this is a company that continues to cut prices. I don't know how many times now. I think it's seven. It might be eight. Obviously, unless you sort of, you know, if you can get the flip side, if volumes are going to pick up on price cuts, that's one thing. But your margins are going to be impacted. And last quarter, we saw margins down somewhere between 17 and 17 and a half percent getting down to sort of the historic automakers, the legacy automaker levels of about 16%. By the way, this is down from about 24% or so that they were in the fall of last year. If you think that was a trough um, margins, then you know what? You buy the stock. If you think there's more worse you know, news coming, then I think the stock, the first place it stops, Dan, is probably about 208, which was the high in February. And again, the high back in March of this year before we sold off for a few times. Uh, that's your first level. But I think, in fact, if things start to really get going and if China really starts to sort of unwind before our eyes, you probably have a lot more downside than that. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And just to, to be really transparent, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I kind of mentioned it on uh, Market Call. I put another put position on. I define my risk in a name like this, as I've been doing with NVIDIA. And I, I said it, I think, uh, for for weeks, weeks on end in, in the spring into the summer. It was good money after bad in this and NVIDIA. But I put one on again. It's working out. I trimmed it a little bit just today, this morning, guy, when you have this sort of move where you haven't seen an uptick basically in a week and a half or so. you got to trade around it. And you got to prepare for a bit of a bounce. Maybe it was that breakout level from, you know, uh, in June guy like that that's probably your 208 level or something like that and then you look to put it back out here so I'm not playing for some sort of you know like all out you know destruction based on no news we have news it's it's in China it's price cuts it's the thing and I want to really set up again before um, their Q3 earnings but that's going to be you know in October and I got to tell you man if they guide margins down again this stock's going much lower in my opinion so again you know I'm just kind of bringing it up here just to highlight a little bit of some of the names that we've been focused on and we've been trading, we've been detailing on the show. Um, guy, let's talk uh, to about a name near and dear to your heart. You had a uh, great run at the fine institution of Goldman Sachs. This was back, uh, you know, in, in the early days of your career. You and I have been talking about this with Danny Moses on the tape. You know, there has been an all out assault on David Solomon, the existing CEO of this company. And we said it on our pod, I think a few months ago, there was a couple well-placed articles. One was in the journal and one was somewhere else. I think it was in the spring guy. And we were saying the knives are out. I mean, like the likelihood of Solomon, when you start to see that sort of, you know, commentary from former employees, that sort of thing, look at the headline today. Um, it's not great. And the stock's under point and people are pissed, right? Like when I say people, I mean, the people that work there, the partners, right? And that sort of thing. Talk to me a little bit about this one. You've been very clear, I think for years, that the, the, the kind of bloom is off the rose a little bit as it relates to Goldman Sachs, as far as, you know, people thinking um, it's the shop that was in the 90s and the 2000s, that sort of thing. But you still have an affection for the brand and um, the quality of the work that they do. What's going on here? Absolutely do. I mean, for context, you know, Goldman was built on culture. And, you know, when I started there in 96, there were 6,000 employees in the firm. Uh, 
by comparison, I think today they're north of 42,000 employees in the firm. So almost by definition, it's very difficult to maintain the culture when you have that type of growth in terms of the number of employees, number one. David Solomon was not a Goldman person. David obviously came from Bear Stearns. I mean, historically, that's really not what happens at Goldman Sachs. They, they promote from within, and typically the hierarchy is from people that started their career there. David was sort of a little bit different. And I think by definition, there were a lot of people that were against him from day one just on the back of that. If you go back and look, there was a period of time where the stock was doing extraordinarily well under his leadership, but they've taken some missteps without question. The whole foray into the consumer market was a disaster in a word. You're absolutely seeing partners leave, but historically you do see partners leave. And I don't think the numbers are anywhere. It's not like two or three standard deviations away from what you historically see at this time of year. The difference obviously is there's a vocal group out there that clearly, to your point, have the knives out. I'll say this, since I think over the last eight or nine CEOs, the average tenure is about six or so years. In the spring of next year, it will be six years for David. So it's logical that he probably steps down. I do think there's probably um, there's a, there's people in place for that. Uh, Doug Cass has written about this. It's not going to happen this time around, but two CEOs from now, I think you're going to get the first woman CEO at Goldman Sachs in the form of Erica Leslie, somebody that I worked with at J. Aaron. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, it's pretty clear that um, there's a there's a faction of people that want David Solomon out. Now, with that said, I mean, the stock has been meandering. You know, you started right in the middle of this range that we've been in for quite some time. Uh, I understand why people are disappointed. But again, you know, I think you're going to get to a level where Goldman's going to be Goldman is going to be a buy again. It probably comes in the form of about three eighteen. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but that's no, that. I, I think it's I think it's I think it's good because this is one of those names. It's been a, a bit of an anomaly, right? It was often mentioned as like JP is in you know the money center situation as best of breed. I don't think it it gets that moniker anymore. It certainly does from their client base, but it doesn't as it relates to its investor base. If you think about it, the relative underperformance has been um kind of notable um let's look at the xlf really quickly here guy because you know jp we highlighted that yesterday we talked a little hold bit on about- one sec i just got to say one thing so yeah. jay aaron and spear leads added different culture okay so this is gary so let me just say this about jay aaron jay aaron was bought by goldman sachs i want to say 1981 or 82 um and there might have been i don't know maybe a hundred or so people at jay aaron ish at the time jay aaron was a commodity trading firm, coffee and cocoa specifically, but precious metals as well. To compare Jay Aaron with Spear Leeds, I think that's what you're doing, is is just it makes no sense what, whatsoever. I mean, Spear Leeds, uh, I'll, I'll save what I really want to say about him, but it's you can't even compare him to the people that were at Jay Aaron. So the yeah. hierarchy of the firm for years were people from Jay Aaron. I think there are about three people at Goldman left from the Spear Leeds deal in I want to say 98 or so, which was an unmitigated disaster. It might have been later than that, but I, I'm, I'm probably I think it, wasn't it, it might have been 99 right after 99 they, right yeah. after they went public. And, and again, that was just the chase of what this the, the equity market mania was. Right. Like they were trying to kind of, you know, further embed, um, you know, like like distribution and equities, that sort of thing. But um, yeah. 
All right, let's look at the XLF here, guy. We looked at it yesterday here. You know, it, it's approaching a level. It's approaching that 200-day moving average. And I think what's interesting about this, Carter detailed Berkshire, which is obviously the largest holding in that, and it's not a bank by any means. Uh, that was yesterday, you know, to you and to me and to him. It looked like what like the emerging double top of all double tops here. But I want to go to one name in particular, and this is Bank America. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit on Fast Money last night. I mean, this one to me, it just, you know, it had that pop. It broke out of that range, right? Um, you know, but it's right back to this kind of breakdown level. This was from the spring, right, when we were in the throes of the regional banking crisis. And a lot of, I guess, analysts and, and, and investors were trying to figure out, okay, which money center banks have huge issues with mark-to-market, you know, held to maturity, um, you know, issues here as a lot of these regionals did that some of which went under. And I think a lot of folks just kind of piling through or pouring through the financials came to the conclusion that Bank America has actually the most risk. So when you look at the 10 year back at the highs of where it was when banks were failing just a few months ago or something like that, you say to yourself, and I think that's probably what's going on here, guy, you say to yourself, are we going to see some of these issues in Q3 earnings when we get into them in October? October for, for money centers like Bank of America. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm going to be careful here. I, I'm, I'm not a huge Brian Moynihan fan. Um, I'd sort of liken him to Roger Goodell in terms of the NFL, somebody that's sort of, I'll say it, I mean, it apparently he's just sort of failed up into a position. Good for him. Um, but even if we can put a longer-term chart, if Jacob or Steven can put up, you know, a five-year chart or so in Bank of America, I mean, this is not, it's not the most awe-inspiring bank. And I think, you know, they're going to be at the crosshairs of some of the concerns that we've been talking about for quite some time. And you're going back there, I think, four years or so, Dan, and you'll see, you know, outside of that move to the upside that we saw, this is a stock that's effectively gone sideways for quite some time. They can't get out of their own way. And I do think, you know, their reliance on the consumer, which I think is going to be problematic going forward, is going to hurt the stock. So go back to that last chart that we just had to sort of illustrate the support level we're at. You know, I think by the fall, we could be talking about a stock that's going to be challenging the levels that we saw earlier this spring on the downside. Yeah, interesting technical level right here. Again, you could say, well, you know, it had that pop post earnings. People thought things were okay. Um, and to give it all back and to be one of the first major banks to do that, I think is pretty noteworthy. I think earlier in the week, we highlighted the fact that Schwab, which is obviously um, has banking aspects of it on that net interest margin and, and, and some of the securities um, that they hold on their balance sheet and the potential liabilities they have with they have deposit flight, that thing has filled in its gap from earnings too. And we highlighted that. So again, you know, the, one of the great narratives, I think, out of Q2 earnings was very clearly that the banks were okay. The major money centers benefited, right, from the regional banking crisis. Well, the stocks over the last, call it, few weeks or so are telling a slightly different story. Maybe they're telling a different story for different reasons. Um, I want to talk about uh, retail earnings, Guy. Um, you know, this morning we have Target breaking out. Um, well, not breaking out, but popping off of, you know, that that low. And if you look at it from a technical standpoint, it, it had a match low, I think, of just a few months ago. Um, expectations really low. Sentiment was really bad. You see this sort of pop here. You look and see where that resistance is, right, Guy? I mean, I, I'm hard-pressed to see that a slightly better-than-expected quarter is going to bust this thing out in a material fashion. It seems a little bit... Um, maybe it's short covering. Maybe it's just a kind of, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, picking at something that's so bad. Maybe it's good. Thoughts on what you heard from Target? Because I know you've been critical of this one and you've been right. 
You said it last night that you'd rather be long target into earnings than Walmart. And at one point today, I think the stock was 136, maybe 135 and a half or so. It's obviously given significant portion back, but I think you're right in terms of the chart levels, a bit of a relief rally. And again, I think the bulls took away from this that they're getting their inventories in line. Absolutely true. It was an unmitigated disaster over the last year, year and a half. So at least they got their inventories in line. That's the good news. The bad news is the guidance is a disaster. And their product mix is still, I think, going to be challenged in the environment that I think we're sort of finding our way into. You, you sort of juxtapose that. And I know it's not a great, but with what TJX is saying, a stock that's making an all-time high as we speak. I mean, it's a completely different company. I get it. Um, but this is a retailer that, first of all, does it the right way. And second of all, the environment lends itself to exactly what they do. So it's going to be interesting to see. Right now, Target's, I think, traded about 15 million or 17 million shares. Wow. Typically trades about six. So already about three times normal volume. It'll end the day probably, you know, close to six times normal volume, which is going to be interesting, especially if it gives this entire move to the upside back. And I'm not suggesting that it will. But if it does, that's absolutely something you have to keep in mind going forward. Listen, Guy, if this stock gives the gains back by the end of the day it's given what half of them so far from the highs here it's lights out i mean it's breaking down and and maybe they can pull out this is uh on the uh on the target again um pull it out to like a five year and you're gonna see there's plenty of room to the downside here until you get to some sort of technical support and even with the valuation where it is relative to you know its peers i i mean I, this would be this would be a very bad bad situation i i don't think it would be great for retail and to your point about TJX. This is a theme that we've heard a lot about, about consumers trading down. That really plays, I think, to TJX's benefit here. And I think that's what you're seeing. Really quickly, Guy, Walmart reports tomorrow before the opening, an implied move about 3.5% in either direction. The stock is just coming off new all-time highs, I think, about a week or so ago. This trades at like 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 10 turns over target, right? When you think about it from uh, a multiple standpoint. And that's one of the reasons why I said early in the week when we were on Fast Money, I just said, listen, you know, coming into this earnings week, I'd rather be in, in a pairs, you know, short Walmart, long target. I'm just not so sure how this one at its valuation, you know, is going to continue to be able to chug along. But that being said, some of the things that we've heard of some of the retailers that are reported, maybe it does really work well for Walmart, um, especially given the mixed shift of their products, but also some of the, 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 the benefits or some of the progress they've made on inventory. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it seems as though in terms of operationally, they're probably six months ahead of target in terms of getting their inventories in line. I think valuation, you're right. I mean, it's it's very expensive. I think it's probably close to 25 times next year's numbers. Target probably is 14-ish. I'm sort of um, putting my finger up in the air and licking it, but I think that's pretty close. You know, recently last week, you had an analyst put $190 price target into earnings. Uh, I think that's interesting. Obviously, their grocery business is going to help them. Margins will improve. Question is, to your point, you know, how much is left in the tank in this thing? You know, the fact that we're making an all-time high in earnings is a good sign. And maybe we continue to do the grind. But at a certain point, even for Walmart, valuation is going to get in the way. All right. Well, listen, we covered a lot of ground here today, Guy. We talked a little bit about the OK Computer Podcast. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this show right now, go find it in your favorite podcast store. 
and also follow it in there. Also, you know, if you like Market Call, because it is a very visual sort of thing, we do a lot of charts, guy. People like to look at you, kind of see what you did with your hair on any given day, one way or another. But maybe you're like like this in the audio podcast. Maybe you're walking your dog. You like to listen to the Market Call, that sort of thing. We also place the audio in the podcast store, so you can find it uh, at Market Call in your favorite podcast store, guy. Precisely. And sorry about that. I hit my mute button. I appreciate everybody being here. Sorry we went a little bit late, but definitely check out OK Computer. Smash the like button, as they say. And thank you for joining us. I want to thank our sponsor, FactSet, Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. Speaking of which, tomorrow we'll be back, I believe, with Carter Braxton Worth. I'm not sure if Butters is back from vacation, but if he is, I'm sure we'll get some Butters as well. Enjoy the rest of your day. Um, Fed minutes and all those fun things and keep your eye on the things that we talked about, specifically HYG and some of those currencies. Talk to you later, folks. Thanks.